Good morning. It is an absolute joy to be with you. I did not think this moment would come so soon after our departure last summer. So all the more we are thrilled and delighted to be with you. It's wonderful also to see some new faces, to see that the work is progressing here. The Lord is doing his work through his word to bring about conversions. We'll even see a baptism today of a brother who's come to faith. Wonderful. So encouraged to be here. So encouraged to uh, catch up with many of you and uh, connect. And I know that many of you have been praying for us. Yeah, uh, one verse, I already shared this with Foundations class that has come to my mind as I've thought, as we have thought of you is from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says there to the church in Thessalonica, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And it's a joy that this desire of ours has been fulfilled uh, this morning to be able to see you face to face. I'm bringing the word to you from Acts chapter 18, um, and it's a joy to bring God's word to you from that passage of scripture. If in, in business and in politics and sports, there's often certain components that are required in order for the business to be successful, in order for the, them to make a profit, perhaps, or for the political campaign to build their election campaign in order to win the championship. Certain building blocks have to be in place. Certain things have to be uh, come together in order for there to be success. You have to work hard. You need the right strategy. You need a good team around you to get to where you want to get to, the goal, achieve the goal. And in, in church planting, in, in the life of the church, in church planting God's way, it's, it's no different. The components might be different, but it's also the case that certain building blocks need to be there in order for the church to grow from a small sapling into a healthy, fruitful tree. And so we were going to encounter church planting God's way from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 to 22. Let me read that for us. Acts chapter 18, in the Bibles that are provided, it's on page 540. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see, the, see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, this ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of all these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Kenchere. He had cut his hair for he had, was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return if, to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. God's word for us this morning. Just to give us a little bit of context, a little background of what's going on at this point in the book of Acts, you remember the kind of the thesis statement of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and then they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And then we see the missionary movement branching out from Jerusalem. We see Paul or Saul coming to faith in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. The persecutor becomes the preacher and the apostle to the Gentiles. He's on his first missionary journey in the years 46 to 47 AD. He visits Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, a number of churches there. He comes back to the church at Antioch, which is in Syria, his sending church. And then he goes on a second journey, this time with Silas from AD 49 to AD 51. And they are, uh, again, covering some of the same ground they had in the first journey in Asia Minor. And then they, uh, they, they have this vision from God, gives them a vision of the Macedonian man calling them, come to Europe, help us, we need help. And they start, uh, they cross over to Philippi and go down the coast of the Aegean Sea uh, in modern day Greece down to Thessalonica and Berea, Athens, the previous chapter, the famous speech on Mars Hill and the Areopagus, and then they finally land in Corinth. They cross over that little land bridge, and uh, Corinth was right in the center there, uh, going onto the, the peninsula, the Greek peninsula there. Corinth was a, a really important city at that time in ancient Greece. It was the political hub, the capital of that province, Achaia. So you, you heard in the, in the storyline, there was a proconsul, a Roman governor, who was, had his seat of power there in Corinth. It was also an important commercial hub. So uh, as I mentioned, geographically, it was very strategic. It was almost kind of the strategic nature of the, the, the Suez Canal has today or the Panama Canal because you, um, you didn't have to go all the way around the Greek peninsula. You could just cross over in Corinth. There was a little land bridge there uh, at the tip of the peninsula. And it was also a cultural center. There was a huge temple there was temple worship, there was cult prostitution, and we think about the Greco-Roman world, we often think of the excesses, the sexual immorality that happened. And Corinth was really at the pinnacle of all this uh, kind of behavior. There was even, uh, in Greek society, if someone had a, a licentious or immoral lifestyle, they were referred to as a Corinthio zestai, someone who behaves like a Corinthian. That was kind of in the vernacular. That's how people referred to people who were uh, licentious. So this gives us kind of an understanding of the historical context of the city that uh, this, uh, 
this story plays out in this account here in Acts chapter 18. Paul comes to Corinth, as we've just read. He comes by himself, verse 1, tells us that. He's, he's on his own. He stays with Aquila and Priscilla, verse 2 to 3. He starts preaching in the synagogue, as we read there, testifying to Christ, verse 4. The Jews start opposing him, verse 5 and 6. He then goes to this God-fear, Titius Justice, who has a house right next to the synagogue, and he starts preaching there, but... Um, Eventually, Crispus, the synagogue ruler himself, comes to faith, and that obviously causes more resistance by the Jews. They drag him in front of Gallio, the governor, and Gallio, this Roman governor, this pagan governor, then uh, dismisses the case. He does, wants nothing to do with it, and this allows Paul then to faithfully continue to minister the word for a year and a half, 18 months, and then he finally moves on to Antioch, to his home church via Ephesus and Caesarea and Jerusalem. He fulfills his second missionary journey, as we saw there in those last verses. But what is Paul's missionary journey? What is his missionary activity, his church planting activity there in Corinth? What does that have to say for us today in our day and age, our situation? What principles for church planting can we derive from his experience in Corinth? How can we see, even in this account, how God does church planting his way? I've come up with six things that we can derive from this passage. There's certainly probably more principles, but I've seen six that are very prominent here. They all start with the letter P. So easy to remember. Those of you who've heard me preach before, you know that I love alliteration. I love uh, having points that somehow have some sort of rhyme to them, okay? So the first one is providence. We see God's providence. The second one is provision. God's continuous provision. The second one is, a third one is proclamation, the proclamation of the gospel. Fourthly, um, the persecution, persecution of the church. Fifth, promise, God's promise, God's certain promise. And then finally, the passing of the baton to the next generation. We'll walk through those points for the rest of the sermon. Firstly, God's complete providence, God's complete providence. For those of you who remember the sermon that Paul preached in Athens just one chapter earlier in chapter 17, he was proclaiming to these pagan Athenians and these these philosophers the sovereignty of God and God's providence over all things in all life. He says there in verse 26 of chapter 17 that God determines the allotted periods and boundaries of all people's dwelling places. In other words, God is sovereign and ordains, sovereignly ordains how long we live and where we will live. Every detail of our lives is planned out by God. So that was the theology that Paul proclaimed. And here in this account in chapter 18, we see it practically worked out in the life of Paul and in the life of the church there in Corinth. I don't know if you noticed that, but from beginning to end, throughout all of Paul's allotted period there in Corinth, God leaves absolutely nothing to chance. He's always in the driving seat. He's always in control. Do you notice that as we read that passage? Think back again to the beginning in the first couple of verses. Paul comes to Corinth just at the right time. Just at the allotted period for him. The emperor Claudius in Rome had just expelled the Jews from Rome one year earlier in AD 49. And as a result of that, Aquila and Priscilla had moved to Corinth. By the time Paul had arrived in Corinth, they had already been there for approximately a year. God had already drawn up their boundary lines. Their dwelling place was established by God. And so they were able to provide Paul with lodging. 
and a job in the family-run business, as we saw those there in those first verses. This was really the, the perfect conditions, the perfect launching pad for Paul to begin his church planting activity there in that city. God's sovereign plan, God's complete providence in ordaining and directing and in planning all things for the building up of the church and the expansion of his kingdom. We also see God's complete providence in another way. In, in Paul's encounter with this Roman proconsul, with Gallio, this governor who was there in that city. This Gallio, we know from other sources, was the elder brother of the famous Stoic philosopher Seneca. Seneca himself would later become the private tutor of Nero, the, the stepson of Claudius, who would later be emperor himself. And Seneca, in his writings, writes about Gallio the following. No man was ever so kind as Gallio is to all. And in these verses, in verse 12 and 13, we see how the Jews were trying to manipulate and convince Gallio to, uh, to believe that Paul was propagating an illegal religion. They say to him, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But, but Gallio is influential governor, and he's also a, a governor who is just and who is good and kind-hearted. And so he will not be manipulated into unjustly, basically, condemning a man who is innocent. And so he wants nothing to do with these internal disputes of the Jews. And he says, since it's a matter of questions of words and names and so forth, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judged over these things. Do you notice there that Paul didn't even have to defend himself? He's about to open his mouth, but Gallio defends him for him. He doesn't even have to make a defense. He's acquitted of all charges. He's set free. You know what is amazing about all this? Is that we know from Seneca's writings that his brother Gallio was governor of Achaia and in Corinth for only one year. He was only there for one year. What providence of God that exactly in that year, Paul was also in Corinth, that their paths crossed. Who, who could have known what would have happened if another unjust governor would have been in his place? We can see here in these verses that none of this is chance. None of this is coincidence. All of this is planned by the hand of God. These events, friends, testify to the fact that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign over all of history, that all of history is in his hands. The decrees of governors, of, of emperors, and the judgments of governors are all directed, all ordained by his sovereign hand, all part of his complete divine providence. Just think back to how this church started about 10 years ago. Actually, it was is it 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when we first got the, the land grant from a decree from His Highness Sheikh Saud bin Sakhar al-Qasimi, which enabled us to even come here to start planting the church, to start having services here, to be legal here, to build this building. God moved in the heart of that Muslim Sheikh to give this land so this church could be established and the gospel be proclaimed. All part of His divine providence, His sovereignty. Even the fact that you are here right this morning is not chance. It's not coincidence that God has allotted your times and your places to be here right now. This time, use it to his glory. Church, church planting God's way then means that God is in complete control. He's in the driver's seat. He will direct all things for his glory and the good of his church. That's the first foundation of church planting God's way. God's complete providence. 
And the second one is his continuous provision, his continuous provision through fellow workers. You notice there in those first, in that first verse that Paul came to Corinth by himself. Now that wasn't because he somehow was a lone ranger missionary. No, he, he didn't think that he was good enough to do it on his own or that he somehow, you know, his, his church planting skills were enough to get the task done. On the contrary, as, as in Athens, he longed, we know this, he longed for his fellow workers, for Silas and for Timothy to come. And, and they were still in Macedonia collecting funds for his ministry so that he didn't have to uh, live off the, the Corinthians. And when they finally arrive there in verse 5, we see that Paul is just supported, right? He can now finally devote all his energy to the proclamation of the gospel. They don't only bring financial support so that he can devote himself to the ministry, but they also bring moral and, and spiritual support. I mean, Silas, he had been with Silas in prison in Philippi, singing there in the middle of the night. Timothy was like a son to him, a spiritual son to him. Finally seeing them face to face, those bonds of brotherhood being strengthened, that must have been so, so encouraging to him. Their arrival there in Corinth in verse 5 are, is a testimony to God's continuous provision to Paul and the ministry and the church in a time of need. Or consider again Aquila and Priscilla, that couple there in verses 2 and 3, who sacrificially served Paul, who opened their home to him, who let, them, let him work in their family-run business. You know, these two, they, they were kind of like the ancient version of, of global nomads, they were born in Pontus, which is up in the Black Sea in modern-day Turkey. Then they, they move to Rome. They get expelled from Rome. They move to Corinth. Then in, in verse 19, we read that they actually uh, joined Paul's entourage to Ephesus. Later, we know they went back to Rome and then back to Ephesus again. I mean, they were all over the place. Their, their job also kind of matched their lifestyle, right? They were tent makers. Tent makers who were always willing to break down their tents and then pitch them back up again at another location. All not for their own sake, not to make a name for themselves or to get a better job somewhere else, but in order to proclaim Christ and to further the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of Christ. They were flexible. They were hospitable. They gave Paul the resources that he needed in order to uh, settle down in Corinth, in order to establish himself there. And Paul knows the value of their contribution, the value of their ministry. He later, in, when he's writing to the church in Rome, will refer to Aquila and Priscilla as my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They were God's continuous provision, friends, for Paul, for his ministry, and for the planting of the church in Corinth. And there's so many others. Even in this text, we read about this Titius Justice who opens his doors when Paul is kicked out of synagogue, or Sosthenes, the, the ruler of the synagogue, who comes to faith and then is beat up by his own countrymen. And later is going to be the one who is a co the co-author of 1 Corinthians along Paul. Whether it was Silas or Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, Titius Justice or Sosthenes, all of them were indispensable. All of them were so vital for the establishment of the church there in Corinth. All of them reliable, committed, fellow workers in the kingdom of God for the glory of God. And every step of the way, God showed again and again his continual provision for the church putting the right people in the right place at the right time. So friends, if we are to do church planting God's way, let us never forget that church planting God's way can never be a one-man show. It can never be a one-man church, if you will. A church that is only built on maybe the charisma or the personality or even the teaching quality of just one person, one man, that church is doomed to fail. 
Now the church will only grow together, as Ephesians tells us, as the whole body is joined together as a living temple of the Holy Spirit, being built up together on the foundation of the apostle and, and prophets and on the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we will grow together and bear fruit. I just think about how God's continuous provision for this church over the years even before any of us arrived here using a brother called Gavin Watson to actually make the pitch and propose to the sheikh himself whether an evangelical church could be established here. Or how God provided through UCCD, uh, who planted this church, the United Christian Church of Dubai, bringing Josh and Jenny over, the founding members of this church, some of them who are still here, Gary and uh, JC and others. The Lord continually providing through past and present members of the church, each playing their part, each doing their bit for the strengthening of the body of Christ and the glory of Christ's name. And God has continued to provide in these last nine years, even by bringing Doug on, Laura, bringing them here, filling the gap that was left and them running with it and continuing and, and, and seeing all of you as you're growing together this morning brings so much joy. All of us have a part to play. Every member is God's provision for the church. And it's been so exciting to see that same principle play out even in our small little church plant in Munich, Germany. As every member is playing their bit, doing their part, even this morning, with us not even being there, another brother faithfully bringing God's word, it's not depending just on me, but seeing the body come together, everyone playing their part for the planting of God's church over there. Church planting God's way means that he providentially directs all things. He continually provides in every way needed. And also, ultimately, the, the goal of all of this is so that the gospel can be compellingly proclaimed. The gospel can be compellingly proclaimed. That's our third point this morning. I don't know if you noticed, but Paul's entire stay there in Corinth is marked and is focused around the proclamation of God's word. You see it in verse 4, verse 5, verse 11. He reasons in the synagogue. He testifies that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 11, he teaches the word for a year and a half. Look there again in verse 4 for a second. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul starts there his ministry in Corinth, getting just into that weekly rhythm of, of teaching and of proclaiming. There's, there's not, nothing spectacular, nothing to write home about, but he's being faithful in the weekly, regular preaching of God's word. He's not just simply sharing his testimony or giving his opinions. No, he's appealing from the scriptures, testifying that Jesus is the Christ, reasoning with them, trying to persuade them of the truth. And really, this is the, the essence of evangelism, isn't it? Max Stiles, in his book on evangelism, says, defines evangelism for us. He says, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And this is exactly what Paul does here. His aim, his goal is to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. In other versions of translations of the Bible, the King James Version or even the Luther Version, that word there for persuade is a bit more forceful. It's not just he tried to persuade, but he actually did persuade them. And we know from verse 8 that that's the case, right? Many believed. Many Corinthians believed and were baptized. So he did persuade them. And, and the power of persuasion was not in Paul's eloquence, not in his eloquent speech, not in his own wisdom, but the power of persuasion was in the message itself that he proclaimed, as he would say in Romans chapter 1, that it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. And he preached, he continued to preach in verse 5 
when, when Silas and Timothy come, it says that Paul was occupied with the word. Other translations put it that Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Or the King James Version, Paul was pressed in the spirit to preach and to proclaim and to testify. This fire of, of the proclamation was burning inside him as he would say in 1 Corinthians 9 later, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Later in his letter to the Corinthians, he would also reflect on his preaching ministry when he first came to them. He says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, I know that you also are a church that is devoted to evangelism. I've seen it in my time here. The fact that another brother is being baptized today, Michael, is a testimony to the reality that you love to evangelize, that you are burning with zeal to preach the gospel to the lost. And I would just encourage you, don't grow tired in doing that. Continue to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified so that the gospel would resound in this city. And maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're here and all of this is just strange to you. You don't know who Jesus is. You don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that is you, then I, in this very moment, want to testify to you that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ does not mean that that somehow was his last name. Christ is his title. It means that he is the anointed one of God, the holy one of God, the long-awaited Savior come from heaven, who left his kingly throne in heaven and took on the form of a helpless baby born in the manger of a virgin, and that he lived the perfect life, the life that we should have lived without any sin in him, and that that Christ then became obedient and became the crucified one on the cross, and that through his death on the cross, he took all the sin and all the punishment that we deserved onto himself. That he died in our place so that we could go free, so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord could be saved. That, friends, is the good news of the cross. That is Christ and him crucified. And he didn't stay dead. No, on the third day, he rose again in power, defeating the grave, defeating death. Death could no longer hold him. His sacrifice, the sacrifice was enough. God, the Father, accepted the sacrifice, was pleased to accept the sacrifice because it was a perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. Now he reigns in heaven He has defeated sin and death and the devil, and he will come again in glory one day. I testify to you this morning that Jesus is the Christ. Amen. And friends, there's really only two ways that we can respond to this testimony. There's only two reactions to this good news. Either we can respond as the Jews did in that synagogue. We can revile. We can reject. We can oppose the gospel and its messenger, as they did in verse 6. And then Paul, as he rightly said, then will be true of you as well as was true of those Jews. Your blood will be on your own heads. And that means that on the day of judgment, when Christ will come again as judge, you will stand there on your own two feet and you will have nothing to say for yourself. You will have no mediator. That is option number one. But it doesn't have to end that way for you because there's another response You can respond just like Crispus did, just like Titius Justice did, and the many Corinthians who did what? They didn't do a work. They believed. 
They simply trusted this message of salvation and were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and were forgiven of their sins and received eternal life. So the question this morning for you is, how will you respond to this testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you respond with rejection? Rejection and contempt? Or will you respond with repentance and faith? Those are your only two options. There's no middle ground. And let me persuade you this morning to be reconciled with God if you haven't already done that. Be reconciled with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing you can ever do. Trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Friends, the very centerpiece of church planning God's way is a proclamation of God's word. The compelling proclamation of the gospel. And when gospel is proclaimed compellingly in this way, as Paul did, as we hope to do, then as we've seen, there's really two responses. There's conversion or opposition. Those are the two responses. And so we shouldn't be surprised by resistance. We shouldn't be surprised when persecution is common. That's the next point. Point number four, common persecution. You know, in some sense, Paul was kind of a victim of his own evangelistic success. Because people were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and most prominently Crispus, there was always going to be opposition. He was always on collision course with his detractors and those who hated this message. In the synagogue, the the Jews rejected him. They resisted his testimony. He, He symbolically then shakes out his garments and makes it clear that he is innocent of their blood and that he's now going to direct his ministry towards the Gentiles. But then, amazingly... Of all people, the synagogue ruler, Crispus, is the one who gets saved. Of course, for the other Jews, this is like the final straw. Like, he got our best man, right? That's how they're thinking. And so the situation continues to escalate to the point that the Jews are making a united attack against Paul and bring him before the proconsul Gallio, verse 12. We know that Paul there is acquitted of all charges, But then the ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, it's possible that this is the same Crispus. It was just a different name, or maybe it was his successor. He then is beat up by the fellow Jews. And the angry crowd, there's a mob that, that, uh, that comes together there. What does this tell us, friends? Well, it tells us that persecution is to be expected. Persecution is common for the church. There will always be some form of resistance, some form of opposition, for the enemies of the cross hate the message of the cross. They hate when Christ crucified is preached, because it puts on display the sinfulness of man, and it puts on display that we can't do anything to earn our salvation. And sinful man hates that. The devil hates it as well. When a new outpost of the heavenly kingdom is planted, firmly planted in his domain, in his domain of darkness. And so it's not surprising that persecution will come in some form. Paul tells Timothy later in in his pastoral letters that everyone who lives a godly life for Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter reminds his church that we should not be surprised by the fiery trial, but that this is something common to us. And Jesus himself, our master, says that no servant is greater than their master, but that if they persecuted him, then we surely also will be persecuted. You know, maybe some of us think we haven't really experienced persecution, and that might be the case. I'm sure if we really think about it, we've all experienced some sort of opposition, some sort of, uh, you know, people at at the very least reviling us, perhaps. 
But we should also notice that if persecution hasn't yet come, that is the exception, not the norm. We shouldn't expect an easy life this side of heaven. All of us will be reviled, will be rejected in some way by men. And brothers and sisters, we can be sure of this, that once locals of this emirate come to faith, believe and are baptized into his name and publicly make that public, then at the very latest then, some form of persecution will come. And the same is true in Germany, in our pluralistic culture, whether it's here or in the West, where people say all ways lead to God when we preach the exclusivity of Christ, when we preach that only through Christ can we know God, can we be forgiven of our sins, that will be hated by all. We will be slandered as intolerant bigots. We, our gospel will be labeled as hate speech. We should not be surprised by this. Persecution is common when the kingdom of light invades the darkness. And let's not act then surprised when it does come our way. Let's be prepared for it because this is also part of church planting God's way. Well, the prospect of persecution made Paul afraid, caused him to be afraid. We, we know this because the first thing that God says to him in that vision is, do not be afraid. So Paul was afraid. And so God gives him a promise, a promise of hope. There in verse 9 and 10, he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. This is the fifth point. First of all, we must notice that this promise was specific for Paul's time in Corinth. Even Paul saw it that way, because later when he goes to Jerusalem, he knows by the Spirit that persecution and imprisonment and afflictions await him. So for Corinth, for his time in Corinth, he was promised that no harm would come to him. For his journey to Jerusalem, he was promised that he would face affliction. Why would God not allow any harm to come to him during his stay in Corinth? The reason there is in verse 10, for I have many in the city who are my people. Or if we put that another way, God has chosen many people in Corinth for salvation. That was the reasoning why Paul's ministry would be protected until his task there would be done. In his sovereign grace, God had decreed that many Corinthians, many fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and drunkards and revilers and swindlers, many who hated God will be washed clean by the blood of Christ, be justified and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And all of this would happen through the proclamation of the gospel. You know, some people think that the doctrine of election, that God chooses people unto salvation, that that is kind of a hindrance or a stumbling block to the proclamation of the gospel. That will stop proclaiming because God already knows he's going to be saved, right? But here we see that the exact opposite is the case. If we understand the doctrine of election correctly, that is actually the incentive and the motivation for us to go out and preach the gospel because we know that God has people in this city. That's exactly what happened for Paul. This promise had the effect that he tirelessly then, for a year and a half, proclaimed the good news of salvation to all who would hear, as he knew God had people in the city. Of course, as I mentioned, this promise firstly applies to Paul and Corinth, but we can still apply some principles for us today. Firstly, we, we also can take this promise that we must not be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus has promised us that all authority in heaven has been given to him and that he will be with us until the end of the age. So as we go out fulfilling the Great Commission, we must not be afraid because the authority and the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ is with us as we do so. We can also take the promise that nothing will harm us until our task on earth is done. 
John Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebride Islands, which is now called Manuatu in the South Pacific, was once surrounded by a group of cannibals. And in that moment, he realized that he was immortal until his task on earth was done. And so that took away all fear. Maybe his task would have been done that day. It wasn't. He continued to live and minister for a number of years after that. But that is something we can take hope in. Until our task on earth is done, we are immortal. And finally, another promise we can take from this is that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Jesus, as he had in Corinth, has his people in each city, in each country, in each continent. Think about the people that God has given us here in Rack. The people who came to faith here, who were baptized here. I think of Richard or even Duat or Tony most recently or Arlene and Thea or Alvin and Grace or Oliver and Haiti. So many others I kind of even begin to count. Imagine who else God would have for you all in this city. The people who are still out there, who are still lost and yet through the proclamation of the gospel, God is pleased to save them. Don't grow tired. Keep trusting the promise. And this brings us to the last cornerstone. The last cornerstone of church planning God's way. It's passing the baton. Passing to the baton. After about 18 months there of ministry, it was finally time for Paul to say goodbye. You know, on the surface of things, not much has changed at that point, right? There was still immorality. There was still idolatry in Corinth. But... What had happened, what had changed was that there was now an outpost of heaven in that city. There was now a countercultural to the culture of, uh, of, of adultery and of, of immorality in that culture. That newly established church was like a holy and perfect light in that darkness. And through the continuous preaching and teaching that Paul did for that year and a half, he knew that the Corinthians were now at the point where they were mature, where he could leave them in the hands of other elders, of other men that would be raised up. And so he continues his missionary journey. Of course, he would still stay connected. We know that from First and Second Corinthians and even two other letters to the Corinthians that are lost to us, but that he did write to them. They testify to his enduring love, to his enduring relationship with them. And yet he felt compelled to go home to Antioch to, to also tell his home church of all the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. We know also that somehow he had been under a vow, a Nazarite vow. Perhaps during his time in Corinth, he had devoted himself to this task. And now that his task was done, he shaved his head as a sign of, of his, his task being over and that he was now moving on. You know, Paul, what we see here is he, he understood himself to be a relay runner. Just like in a relay, you have the baton, but it's not just about you finishing the race. You have to hand on the baton to the next runner and then he will finish the race. And we know from scripture, we know from verse 27 that the next runner in that race in Corinth was going to be Apollos. And it's so wonderful how Paul describes this to the Corinthians later when there was factions in the church and he says, it doesn't matter about Apollos or Paul or Peter. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God brought the growth. That's what matters. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that in our ministries Our ministry, whatever it might be, whether it's preaching or music ministry or children's ministry or sound or welcome ministry or discipleship or women's ministry or youth ministry, it's not our ministry. It's not our ministry where we can somehow promote ourselves. No, it's our ministry for the glory of God, for the upbuilding of the church. And let's remember that it's a relay race. It's a relay race. We're relay runners. 
So let's serve, let's minister in view of one day handing over that baton to the next runner, to the next generation of relay runners. That's how we fulfill our ministry. That's how we complete our ministry. We disciple others. We teach others who then in turn can teach others, as Paul did to Timothy and Timothy did to others. That is how Rocky Evangelical Church, that's how any church for that matter, will survive, not just for this generation, but for the next generation and the next. So that in 10 and 20 and 30 and 50 years, should the Lord tarry, there will be a beacon of light in this dark place here at the tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Faithfully, we need to pass on that baton. Friends, this is church planting God's way. In God's complete providence, God plans and directs every detail along the way. He continuously provides on all steps for our needs by rising, raising up fellow workers in the harvest field. Christ's church ultimately is built on the compelling proclamation of his word in season and out of season. For the gospel is a power of salvation. Even though persecution will be common for us as the church, God gives us the certain promise that he will be with us, that we don't need to fear, that he will be with us and we are immortal until our work on earth is done and that he will build his church. And as the gospel is proclaimed and his church is built, his name will be glorified among the nations. Don't we want to be a part of that? Don't we want to be part of this kingdom? Don't we want to give our lives for this cause?